Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. Foster care. Today, we're going to be talking about how transracial adoptees navigate race as they age. Uh, I have been looking forward to this interview all day. I think you're really mm-hmm. going to enjoy it. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. I think a lot of transracial adoptees, it's a lot easier for us to go to the place of questioning um, and then other people do question us. And so I think it's a it's a harder task of developing um, an identity that's grounded in relationships and, and one's lived experience. And I think that that then becomes the task of the parent to figure out how do I, how do, I do that so that my child's identity isn't just a, a label or learning to like kimchi, that that's being Korean is more than eating kimchi. Being Korean is more than saying you're Korean or looking that, looking like you're Korean. Hey, guys, if you are listening to us, and uh, I have a personal huge favor to ask. Actually, it's not that huge. I have a favor to ask. I need you to pop over to iTunes and give us a rating. We read every single one. In fact, we often share them amongst our team here at Creating a Family. Uh, They mean a lot to us, and they help us know uh, what we're doing and doing right and doing wrong. Uh, But most important, uh, they help uh, iTunes uh, help people find us. So it really does help us, and you guys are the only ones who could do it. So please do. This show is brought to you by Creating a Family. We are the national... Adoption and Foster Care Education and Support Nonprofit. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm your host, and I'm the director of Creating a Family. And you can find us and everything we do at creatingafamily.org. This show is underwritten by the Jockey Being Family Foundation. Their mission is to strengthen adoptive families throughout through post-adoption services. And one way they do it is through their free backpack program, which they offer to agencies for no charge, Uh, and they provide a newly adopted child uh, with their own backpack, which is customized with their initial and cute little blanket and a bear. Um, But most important, or at least from my perspective most important, uh, are the parenting resources that are provided in the backpack for the parents. So if you are a newly adopted family or if you know one, please ask your agency to join the Jockey Being Family Backpack Program, and they can get more information about it at their website, which is jockeybeingfamily.com. Uh, and let me also remind you that in addition to our underwriter, our partners also support what we do at Creating a Family, and they are organizations and agencies that believe in education, both pre- and post-adoption uh, and fostering education. They believe in our mission, and they're, they believe in it enough to support us financially. Uh, and that is how we exist. One such partner is Holt International. They were founded in 1956, and they want every child to have a loving and secure home. And they have programs that strengthen and preserve families that are at risk of separation, and they lead the global community in finding families for children who need them. And you can get more information at their website. Today we're going to be talking about how transracial adoptees navigate race as they age. Our guest is Dr. Gina Samuels. She is an associate professor with the University of Chicago at their School of Social Services Administration. She is also an affiliate with the Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture, and she is a transracial adoptee. I am so looking forward, Dr. Samuels, to talking with you about this topic. Uh, it's it's an important one, and actually it's one I think about a whole lot, so it's one that uh, is, uh, is, believe it or not, fun for me to talk about. So anyway, welcome, Great. Dr. Samuels. 
Thank uh, you. Looking forward to this interview. Um, and, and let me just say at the outset that we are talking about all types of transracial adoption. We tend to think of white parents adopting uh, brown or black kids. Uh, however, we're also talking about, uh, uh, and we're thinking of African-American children uh, or Hispanic kids, but that would, would also include most international adoptions are right. transracial. Uh, and I think that's important to know. And and we are hearing more and more now, I think because we're one of the few people uh, who uh, who has resources on this, um, but uh, black families adopting white kids. So yeah. uh, it's it's uh, that also is, and, there, and there's some differences there. But anyway, I just want to for parents to be thinking outside of the um, literal and figural, uh, figurative uh, black and white box. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start by talking about how non-adoptees, kids who are being raised in a a family of their same race. How do they develop, how do children develop an awareness of race? So so now we we used to think that kids didn't develop an awareness of race until much older, and now we are knowing that kids actually and even babies can distinguish differences that we would ascribe to racial features like skin tone or hair texture or nose or mouth things that as adults we racialize, even infants can make these distinctions um, in characteristics of different faces. And so, you know, that, that becomes our the sort of literal visual awareness of race. But as we grow up in our families, we tend to pick up cues in terms of who our parents are, um, who they rush to talk to, who they don't rush to talk to, who's in our home. Um, and this starts to scaffold our growing and emerging awareness of of race as a thing, race as a characteristic around which we describe people, and 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 with a whole language around which we then label um, any any parent who has done um, drawing exercises with with a child will know that they start to try to color different shades, and at some ages people are green and orange and blue, and then at various points of, along their development, kids start to become more specific and <clears throat> and use the race um, matching in the in the color box. I remember my nephew once looking through, I'm biracial, and so my nephew was looking through the color box, and he sadly looks up at me and says, Auntie Gina, there's no, co- there's no color for you. And he was about four when he did this. So and he was not and truthfully, in a, there might not have been a color for you. So. And there wasn't. I know. <laughs> yeah. The world is not, on, is not kind to us as biracial people. But um, so, yeah. so I think, you know, yeah. all, all children, regardless of whether or not they're adopted, um, are slowly starting to pick up the cues in terms of how we organize our, ourselves in terms of race. And I think people need to realize that we're talking preschool when we're talking about right. the age. And as opposed to, and you point out, even infants, there have been some fascinating yeah. studies on infants, but, but but certainly by preschool. So how old, and I know you do research in this area as well and, and, and also keep up with the research, so how old are kids, when uh, transracially adopted kids, when they realize that they are a different race than their parents? Well, sometimes it can be Im- immediately because it's brought to their attention. So, you know, there are some adoptees that I talk to who will tell stories about remembering being three or four when people might have approached them <clears throat> in a store to ask them um, various questions that um, 
signal that there's a difference. And then when that happens, that introduces the idea and topic of race, even sometimes before a child might be necessarily paying attention to it. But I think it's um, it's always important to remember that <clears throat> while a child might be aware of difference, they don't necessarily always assign all of the weight and meaning that we adults have now come to learn come with these differences or are supposed to come with these differences. But kids, as early as they can start to process um, language and understand why somebody's staring or why somebody's coming up and asking them their parent questions or them questions, um, start to become aware of race, which is, I think, some of the ways in which the context of race awareness is a little different because you do have a family that's very conspicuous. And so because of that um, obviousness, sometimes the world brings race to you a little earlier than um, it might to other families where everyone seems to match by race. You use the term a conspicuous family, and, and no doubt transracial families stand out. And in a way, because it is our kids, especially if our children come to us very young, it is their norm. So for them, being right, if they're not sometimes even aware that our families stand out because mm-hmm. it's always stood out. As parents, we notice it, uh, sure. but our children don't. But at some point, our kids do notice it. And, and as you mm-hmm. point out, maybe saying something, but it could also just be noticing that people are looking at them and not looking looking at them as a family and not looking um at uh other um at other families um does racial awareness and identity differ then for a child being raised by a family of a different race you said one thing that it it tends to have their awareness of their self as different from their parents is one aspect of race, and that does, you're thinking, probably happens fairly young. Mm-hmm. Are there other racial awareness and, and identity differences that a kid who is raised by, let's say, an African-American kid being raised by white parents or an Asian child being raised mm-hmm. by white Yeah, so I think a lot of, a lot of um, what we oftentimes undervalue about the racial identity development process is how relational it is that, when we develop an identity, it's not just a label. You know, our sense of ourselves as girls or women, our sense of ourselves as um, gay or straight or whatever our, our the master identities that matter in our society are, these aren't just sort of innocuous, meaningless labels, but they come with a bunch of assumptions about the relationships we've had, the families that we've grown up in, the people we know, the kinds of food we eat, the languages we're inclined to speak, the things we think are funny, the movies we've watched, etc. And I think mm-hmm. what what is profoundly different for transracial adoptees is that oftentimes our growing up, all we have is this label of what we are and the physical evidence of our connection to a group of people who we are not currently living with. <clears throat> and so it it leaves you a little ungrounded in developing a sense of confidence that comes when you grow up having a label that is also lodged within relationships with people who also have this label and this lived experience and this history. And it sometimes can make transracial adoptees feel uncertain about what really does it mean to be Korean if I've never been to Korea in my own awareness. I don't live with people in my house who are Korean. 
I don't go to school don't with like a whole Kim bunch of people. Yeah. And I don't yeah. like kimchi. So what does this yeah. mean? I don't speak Korean. And Koreans look at me and say, I'm not Korean. Mm-hmm. So what do I do with this? So what do what I, am I? You know, what am I? And so a child, that same child who doesn't like kimchi, who's never been to Korea, who doesn't speak Korean, but is growing up being raised by two Korean parents who are Korean and may or may not like kimchi, but have been to Korea and have this history, you don't necessarily so automatically question your Koreanness. But I think a lot of transracial adoptees, it's a lot easier for us to go to the place of questioning. Um, and then other people do question us. And so I think it's a, it's a harder task of developing um, an identity that's grounded in relationships and, and one's lived experience. And I think that that then becomes the task of the parent to figure out how do I, how do, I do that so that my child's identity isn't just a, a label or learning to like kimchi, that that's being Korean is more than eating kimchi. Being Korean is more than saying you're Korean or looking that, looking like you're Korean. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I think it's we've been talking uh, earlier, we were uh, talking ages, and I think it's important to note that oftentimes our, our, people, you hear parents say, you know, my child doesn't really identify at all or even think of mm-hmm. herself as being black or actually they probably mm-hmm. wouldn't say that now because that would be mm-hmm. considered inappropriate but they might still say it about mm-hmm. uh, Chinese or Korean and uh but oftentimes this the the this um this awareness of this differentness doesn't come until the child leaves home and it may be the mm-hmm. first time it could be summer camp uh right. it could be uh, but it often is uh at college uh, because yeah. all of a sudden people are meeting you and they're making assumptions that right. uh, you're black, so your parents are black, and you're going mm-hmm. to know a lot about and identify with the black culture, or you're Korean. And and, and I think that, that we, we hear a lot from adult adoptees, or this right. young adult adoptees, that that's when, um, and it doesn't have to be a crisis, but it does have to be uh, a coming awareness of, how how am I going to who do I identify who am I? But uh, mm-hmm. another time of racial identity um, has that been shown to be a a, a particularly um, uh, I mean I shouldn't say troublesome necessarily because I, I don't want to mm-hmm. uh, yeah. be putting a label on it. But is that the, the time when uh, late adolescence when children are leaving the umbrella of their family is that a time of uh, a racial awakening and identity awakening. Yeah, I think it can be. So to your to your point of not wanting to label it troublesome, I would just say it's a really active moment in a tr- in yeah. development. I think mm-hmm. for for anyone, this transition to adulthood moment is really an active time of figuring out. You know, how do you how are you going to make your own decisions? What schools are you going to go to? And mm-hmm. a lot of times for transracial adoptees, these experiences also have overlain on top of them developmental opportunities that sometimes were delayed. And so, you know, to the parent who says, oh, my kid just isn't really interested in that. Well, if if since the day you adopted them, you have not been exposing them on going to it as a, just an everyday feature of their growing up, they don't have that to choose from. So it's it sort of um, suggests that an interest should be natural 
and it's not. These are things that you develop in a child just like you would develop religion or you would develop a piano skill or something else that you're wanting to develop in your child or second language. And so <clears throat> when that hasn't happened, a lot of transracial adoptees who do go to college, there are many people who don't go to college, but for people who do go to college, that becomes a developmental context to sometimes for the first time try on identities that weren't readily available and try on relationships. And that goes back to my point about identity being relational, that that you just really have to have more than just a label or a heritage in order to make sense and, and operate from the place of having an identity or, or feeling a sense of belonging. And so a lot of a lot of adoptees will go to college and they will find there's all kinds of clubs on my campus. So you can be a, in a club for pretty much everything. There are sororities. Many of these sororities and fraternities are are highly racially segregated. And so um, m- many young adults use this as an opportunity in a moment to to explore. Um, and all people do that in college. Um, mm-hmm. But but for transracial adoptees, it often be, is often overlaid with a lot of racial identity searching, sometimes sexuality identity searching. All these identities that tend to get oppressed in our own family systems when they are not prepared to nurture those identities. When we get outside of our family systems, that gives it an opportunity to to be explored outside of um, of a family where that may not have been an option for for a young person. Do you think that racial identity and awareness differ if you are of the majority race or the minority race where you live? Could you say a little bit more about what you're wanting me to speak about? Yeah, we we sometimes hear from parents, uh, white parents, who say, you know, I don't really, racial identity, I don't identify as being white. I identify Mm -hmm. as being Mm -hmm. human or whatever. And Uh, it makes me wonder if if that, and, and, and if they then want to apply that to their child, who, the mm, child uh, uh-huh. uh, and, and they want to say, I don't want my child being raised, assuming, making assumptions about yeah. themselves because of their race. I want them to identify with whatever, the human race or, or yeah, whatever. That's yeah, that yeah. cliche. And I just wonder uh-huh. if there's a difference between um, if it's a white parent saying it and, and uh-huh. they live in the U.S., which is majority white, uh, how that influences their ability to to say that yeah oh i think it has everything to do with that i mean i think that's core to white privilege so part of you know part of being white and being the majority um, dominant racial group is that you don't have to think about your race that that this society as it as it now exists in the u.s is orchestrated around whiteness and so you don't have to think about figures of positive representation for yourself because it's everywhere on the on TV, on birthday cards, in movies, in cartoons, in research, everywhere there are places of representation of whiteness that are both complex, good and bad, but in particular send messages about all the things that white people can do and be. And so you don't have to think about that as an identity to protect or to nurture because society has done that because we're in a in a white dominated society and so part of white privilege is is that freedom to not have to think about all the ways in which race in terms of whiteness matters for you but there's a whole group of other people who are not white who don't have that race privilege to not think about it and so it's a 
it's a it's a logical error for a white person or a parent to think that they can confer that white privilege onto their child just because it's their child. It does, race doesn't work that way, and privilege doesn't work that way. And while they may benefit a little bit from having a parent that has some race privilege, um, they will move through the world with a different skin and a different appearance and therefore a different experience of race, and race will matter for them. And so I think, you know, parents are, I'd like to believe that's a well-intended kind of thing, but that's mm-hmm. that's just an impossibility. And it's actually a harmful thing to do to a child who will not ever be given that kind of privilege in society. Because you're not preparing them for the reality. Not, of right, being. for their reality. Right, you're yeah. par- preparing them for your reality, which right. is real, but it's not their reality. But it's not theirs. And so, yeah, yeah and it, just not theirs. And, and when they're five, it may be a little bit there. Yep. But it and might they be. won't be aware. But when they're mm-hmm. uh uh twelve Yeah, uh, it's not and, gonna be you know, anymore. Yeah, uh exactly. You know, there are uh, we hear from people who say uh white uh whites who say, you know, I hear about this white privilege, but I don't feel privileged. <laughs> I don't feel you know, privileged. I'm, yeah. I yeah, you know, I think, off. I had to put myself through school yes, and you know, nobody did. gave me a darn thing. So yeah. you know, talk some about that. About that, yeah. So I think people who kind of are resistant to that are misunderstanding what white privilege really means. White privilege doesn't mean that you haven't suffered or that you haven't worked hard or that all of your life has been easy or that, you know, that you, you know, that you can have white privilege and then be a woman and experience sexism. You can have white privilege and be gay and experience homophobia. You can be white and disabled and experience uh, incredible disadvantage because of your disability or be white and poor, but that doesn't undo the white part of it. So these ideas that we have privilege and that somehow it's all consuming, you know, the fact that I am a cisgendered female who's heterosexual, these are privileges, but I also am black, I'm biracial, I have these other experiences. And so it, being privileged doesn't mean that your life is easier, that you haven't earned things or that you haven't worked hard, but it does mean that you exist as a white person in a system that is set up for white people to succeed. Um, and that the same kind of hard work in a different body may not have been allowed to reap the benefits of their hard work in the same way that there have been policies, systematic policies and practices that work in favor of rewarding white people or white appearing people for the hard work that they do and not rewarding or even sometimes punishing and limiting, actively controlling, constraining people who are brown for the same hard work and sometimes harder work that they do. And so that's what white privilege, yeah, I think people get caught up in, well, but I, you know, suffered this loss. And no, white privilege doesn't mean your life has been great. (laughs) It just means that you have a characteristic that in our society is valued and protected and held up as the norm. It means that you can say you're just a person and that you're just normal and that you're just average and then I'm what does that mean about race. everybody else? Yeah. yeah, that I'm a member of the human race. Or that when somebody says American, they think of a white person. Or when they say, oh, just people, they mean white. And so it's that you are the default. You are the norm. And there's all these other people who are not. And that's what the, that's what white privilege means. So what 
should adoptive parents do? We, assuming uh, I'm speaking at this point of, of the adopt of the white adoptive parent who is parenting mm-hmm. children of color. So we we walk in the world in our white skin, and we have privileges, whether we recognize them or not. Right. Uh, we have privileges because of that that our children aren't going to have. Uh, we may hope that the world is different by the time they're adults, but l- chances are good they're, they're, it's not going to be <laughs> yeah. that different. So ha- what should we as adoptive parents do? We can't give them our privilege, so how do we right. prepare them um, to walk through the world without this privilege? Yeah, well, I think the first step is what we were talking about earlier is just recognizing that there are different experiences in the world than yours and that that as a white person, your experience, even for your own child, may not always be the best starting place to understand what your kid needs. That doesn't mean that anything you know is not worthwhile or that there's nothing that you can impart or that's that would be ridiculous to say. But it does mean that you may need some other reference points and that it would be ideal if you had some of these reference points prior prior to adopting so that you're not learning kind of at the expense of your kid as your kid is growing going through things that you may have never anticipated them going through i think it requires being really open and humble um and not not when your child comes to you from a place of pain that something has happened that is the thing that you were worried about with regard to race that you thought you could wait another year or wait until they whatever the the wait moment is, but it happened earlier that you don't ask them to prove it to you or to justify that it really was racism um, and that you meet them at the place that they're experiencing this and be their advocate and their ally, um, even if it's something that you see differently and even if it's something that you wished was different or that you never experienced before. And I think just being open to that these things change, you know, part of the conversation today is about thinking about, you know, adoption as a lifelong context for development and the things that they need um, and the, the ways and the importance of race at five and will be different than at 10, will be different at 20, 50, that these things ebb and flow over development and that it will require continued growth the way you respond to race stuff to a five-year-old um, is a very different way than you'll need to respond to it when they're 12 and 15. And if your development of racial sophistication is at the five-year-old level, then it just signals you've got some learning catch-up that you have to do. And so to develop some some allies of your own and some supports of your own um, so that you can find ways of figuring out how do you want to talk with your child about these these experiences. You talked about reference points, that parents uh, need reference points. Uh, what do you mean? Or give me some examples of mm-hmm. what you mean by reference points that parents so, have, ideally in place before, but if not before. Yeah. yeah. Today is a so good time say, to begin. Yeah, yeah, today is a good time. Today is never too late. So, yeah. um, you know, I think the the quick, obvious places are things like books and training videos and groups you know, that are designed to be spaces where parents can um, get caught up on just kind of basic information. And I would say that's the, you know, that's kind of the no-brainer easy thing. It's a low commitment. um, It's just as easy to do. I think think the more lasting and important 
um, points of reference would be developing relationships with people. Um, and ideally, you will you will have had these things before you decided to adopt so that you're not going out fishing for friendships because you are now adopting a kid of a particular race and this is going to be the first time that you've had a relationship with a person of that particular race. But even if that's the case, to, to start building your community so that as these things happen, you're not left kind of holding the bag with your child for a response and not exactly knowing how to make meaning about this. Is it a big deal? Is it not a big deal? Should you go in and talk to the school? Should you not go in and talk at the school? <clears throat> and just having a sounding board. There's all kinds of parent boards, even for people who aren't um, transracially adopting, of you know, kind of thinking through different dilemmas of parenting that are just kind of common to any parent. And there are those certainly for transracial adoptive parents. But I think transracial adoptive parents need both older cohorts of transracial adoptive parents who can forewarn them for what's down the line, so like a peer mentoring, but also they need people who aren't part of the transracial adoptive community but are part of their child's racial ethnic community to help them think about things in a little bit different way. And once you, in the context of a relationship, that's a lot easier, um, both for for people of color to give that kind of advice um, in a way that's tailored to that person and also for that for the person who is transracially uh, parenting to take that advice because it's from a person who knows you. The uh, In relevance to, I, I particularly picked on, picked up on your comment, uh, uh, be open uh, to what your child is telling you and don't ask them to prove it. We got mm. a question that I, I want to read, and this is it's not directly on point there because the child wasn't mm-hmm. asking to prove, but it, it's um, she says my 11 year old black son went to the toy section of Walmart to look at toys while toys while I shopped. He was followed by a store clerk, I assume because they thought mm. he was going to shoplift. I don't mm-hmm. know whether to address this with him as racism because maybe it was or maybe it's not. He could have been followed because he was alone in the toy section at an age where kids do shoplift. I am introducing. Am I introducing the idea of racism where it may not exist, uh, or am I avoiding the topic if I don't talk with him? Uh, <laughs> she doesn't give us a lot of fact as to uh, I, I, whether her son was aware and brought it to her attention, um, yeah. or whether the store clerk did. So there's some. Right. I think we can make assumptions um, uh, about um, uh, how it came down. So I'm not sure that believing or not believing. It sounds like. It's not yeah. an issue. It sounds yeah. like her son. She's is just not sure what it is. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like mm-hmm. she's just not sure about how to read this and and the degree to which she involves her son in on it um, yes. versus not. And I guess <clears throat> I'm always I'm always struck by these questions because I also feel underlying that is the fear of oh my god what if it is racism, and <laughs> let's pretend that it was. I mean let's pretend that he was getting followed <clears throat> in the store because he's a black kid. It will if it didn't happen this time, it will happen um for the rest of his life. This will happen um and so I guess I'd wanna and i and yet I appreciate you don't wanna um be the parent that is like, "Oh my God, it was racism, and then go make a big deal out of everything that is gonna be something that is a daily feature. I was followed last week in a grocery store, and it was so Oprah incredibly Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey obvious. was followed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just so that's the point, you know, like, that's the point. You can't confer, class doesn't confer privilege, you know, making a bazillion dollars like Oprah doesn't purchase you out of being black. It just doesn't. And so 
you know, it, it very well might have been racism. And so to me, the, the big question here isn't whether or not it's racism, but rather how how is her son experiencing it and sitting and talking with him about the meaning that he's making from that um, and see, you know, like where he is. But also to think through with him what would be the harm in having a conversation. Sometimes people get followed in stores. Sometimes this happens. It could happen to you. Let's talk about different ways in which you can handle this, because sometimes it might make you mad. Because I know it made me mad last week, when I like, and I felt all indignant about, like, how dare this person? And then I thought, well, wait a minute, it shouldn't, nobody should get, it's not the fact that I'm a professor, or I make X number of dollars, or I could buy anything in the store, which is initially where my indignation took me. But it really is the fact that as a, as a brown-skinned woman, I'm walking in a store that I regularly shop, and I get followed around for just shopping. There was nothing mm-hmm. I was doing suspicious. So this will happen to her, her son. And if she noticed it or if he noticed it and brought it to her, it's big enough to talk about. It's mm-hmm. the time. It's the time. And mm-hmm. nope, you don't need to make a big deal about it because this is going to happen so often that you cannot make a big deal about it. Sometimes you will. Sometimes you will choose that one of the options is to go to the store and confront them and talk with them and do an intervention for the store. Sometimes that may be what you choose to do. But most of the time, you will not have the time or energy to, to do that every day. So then it's thinking through, okay, how do you want to handle this when this, when this happens? How do you want to, mm-hmm. you know, what are, what are the ways that we want to go through and handle this? What does this mean? And just have a conversation so it's not so emotion-laden about was it racism or not, but rather these things happen. Stores need to protect themselves from um, having things stolen. This is a feature of how they've organized their protecting their uh, merchandise. They're going to follow people who look suspicious. Sometimes they do this in ways that are racist. Sometimes they do this in ways that are classist. Sometimes you will get read that way. How do you want to mm-hmm. deal with it? And, it? and it's just matter of fact. It doesn't need to be so emotionally charged. And I think sometimes that's one way in which white people who haven't been, who haven't experienced this a lot of time get a lot of times can get really emotionally ramped up about it and make it a bigger deal and then resort to the choices. Either you talk about it and make it a big deal or you don't talk about it at all. And what I'm suggesting is there's something in, in between where it's just matter of fact. This is just, this is just how the world is. And I, I, I also sense, uh, and perhaps I'm projecting here, but that the mom is afraid to introduce racism where it's not because she doesn't want to make her child aware of racism or mm-hmm. or she doesn't want her make her child mm-hmm. feel feel lesser because of his race um yeah. and uh so talk a little about that that fear of yeah. you know, so i my think son feel it, like he's not as good as anybody else just because mm-hmm. his is more melanin mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the best way to do that is to teach him that some people actually do think that and they are wrong Mm-hmm. rather than pretending that the poison isn't in the water. So drink it anyway. It's to recognize where the poison is, where the water is, and how to distinguish that. By talking about race and talking about racism and the fact that it exists, you're not introducing racism. It, racism already has been introduced. It's already It's already there. And so the only inoculation and antidote to it is to talk, with them about that it exists all the places where it's likely to show up and for your for in this case her son but for children to be able to sniff it out and recognize it 
and have the other have thing. armor. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And have an no, armor. That's, yep. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. And here's the thing: at 11, he is aware of it. No, oh, whether yes, or not, he is. I don't know. In this, oh, I, I don't promise know he case. is. Yeah, yeah, no, he exactly. is. Yeah, I promise. He may 11? or may not know whether he was being oh. followed, but he knows yes. he was at 11. He has been teased already. People have asked him questions. Like, I don't know where he's growing up, but I, yes, by 11, he is as aware of race as the fact that he is a boy. Mm-hmm. And that That's whether cool. or not he likes girls or not, or these sorts of things, like 11, yes. And so you're not, so that the, the issue isn't that you're going to somehow introduce racism into a a pristine environment. The racism is already there. Your son has already been following this door. It's mm-hmm. there. And so mm-hmm. how do you make sure that he is, isn't left with your parental silence to make meaning of it on his own? Like as a parent, wouldn't you want your voice to be in his ear as he's dealing with this without you in his community and in his stores? Wouldn't you want you to be the one that's there with him when he's got to deal with this, whether you're physically there or not. But he, it is, it has already happened and it is going to happen. And, and he, at this age, they're watching to see whether or not as parents we're able to stand there with them or whether or not we're so freaked out, we can't talk about it. And they can sense that. And this is where you would go back to your, uh, to use your your academic term reference point. I would say, right. <laughs> this would be going right. back to the people yeah. who are adults of the mm-hmm. race that your child is, and find out there are a number of, as you said, there is a range of responses to yeah. any number of situations. And in this case, being followed in a store. And you could think of one or two, but I guarantee a black man or a black woman has got probably 15. And, oh, bazillion. Yeah. yeah of, of knowing how, okay, let me run through my list of possible ways I'm going to handle this. How much time do I have? How overt is it? Whatever. How right. pissed off I am. Whatever. Yes. Yes. So all these things all, are factored in. Yes. And so go to your reference point and find out from that person, uh, ask that, hopefully there's more than one, um, yeah. My son was followed in a store. I want to talk with him. What are some of the things that? What are some of the options you run through in your head when you're followed when in the store? When this happens, and mm-hmm. uh, so that I can start talking with my son. And and would you also talk with my son? Yeah. Uh, about yeah. Uh, so yeah. let's both let's get the conversation going, uh, and so that he has options uh, of knowing how to handle it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Let me remind everyone that you are listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. Today we're talking about how adult transracial adoptees navigate race when they age with Dr. Gina Samuels. She is an associate professor of the University of Chicago at the School of Social Service Administration, and she's an affiliate at the Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture. And another and here, she is a transracial adoptee. She's an adult, obviously, adult transracial adoptee. (laughs) This show is brought to you by the support of partners who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education uh, and support. Uh, One such partner is Adoptions from the Heart. They have helped build over 6,000 families since 1985 through domestic infant adoption, and they work with people all across the United States. Uh, All right, now we're back. Um, uh, Dr. Samuels, what are some things 
for white parents to be aware of that they may not be aware of because they have not personally experienced it. And I have an ex- uh, I have ex- actually mm-hmm. two examples mm-hmm. I want you to talk about. One, um, the that there is research and it's really strong research that shows that black children are perceived as older than they are. Oh, so, yeah. uh, how does that? impact a child you've got this uh the example we were working with before this 11 year old may well look 13 or 14 or you've yeah. got a, a, a eight-year-old little girl who could maybe looks 12 or 13 uh maybe mm-hmm. that's a stretch but let's say 11 um mm-hmm. so how does how does this impact impact parenting so i think it, in part especially with black kids i think this is this research has been particularly focused on the ways in which um, teachers and other white people read young black children as adults, as older than they are. And we see it even in media reports where they'll say, a young man, the age of 17, and it's usually a black face that we see. And so I think what, what this means in terms of parenting is that even if if in your world an 11-year-old is a little kid, which they are a little kid at 11, the world may be seeing them as a teenager. And when you lay on top of that a race, there is a particular way in which then authority figures might be dealing with your child that is completely mm-hmm. developmentally advanced, way way beyond <laughs> the way that they show, should be dealt with. <clears throat> and so this means that not only should you thinking, oh, what do I do with this 11-year-old? But you should be having these conversations far earlier than you might think or might actually be accurately developmentally appropriate so that your child is ready not only for their actual developmental stage, but for the way in which society is going to put on them perhaps a more advanced developmental stage than where they, where they even are, than is even fair for them. And I think, it, and certainly where you were just speaking and kind of in reference to males, and, and you're right, there's a problem there, but I also think it influences girls. Uh, oh, yes. they're perceived as being uh, sexually older um, Mat- that, mm-hmm. and, and more mature than, mm-hmm. than, than their age, which yes. and they may well be developmentally their age uh, mm-hmm. from an emotional standpoint. Uh, and that throws them into uh, situations that uh, they're just not prepared to handle. Yep, yep, yep. So I think, again, the theme of our conversation is it may be, there may be a truth that lies within your family and the reality that it is, but once you step outside, the world gets a vote on the meaning of race and how much it matters, on the age of your child and who they are, and that your parenting has got to take that seriously. And, and just throw out another example, uh, I think your advice is, is spot on for both, and that is the, the, the fetishizing, uh, the, that attraction mm-hmm. that some uh, white men have to Asian women and Asian mm-hmm. girls. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, now I don't think that, that uh, Asian uh, girls are perceived older than they are. Right. But So you may not have to be thinking about this with your 11-year-old, but at some point, uh, mm-hmm. when they're reaching teenage years, it's something to be aware of. Yeah, yeah. And so I think this is another kind of this not not an awareness that I think most white people have about how gender is experienced and sexuality is experienced differently when you're not a white female. And that um, Asian females 
um, have this. There are certain, we talked about earlier with um, black girls and a kind of this early sexuality. Um, this is also true, the exotification of multiracial girls. Um, Latinas are thought to be spicy sexual. So there's all kinds of ways in which race intersects with gender such that it puts uh, young girls of color in a particular spotlight that for some white parents, in particular white mothers, may be a completely new way to understand uh, femininity, sexuality, development, risk, danger, who will come to their protection, who will not come to their protection. Um, in, a, in a completely different way. And so from, again, from a parent's standpoint, what I hear you saying is that that pretending it doesn't exist because you wish it didn't exist is not a solution. Yeah, um, yeah. and I would so. say is even it's harmful. So I would mm-hmm. go as far as saying not only is it just not a solution, it's that you're harming your child by sending them out in a world that doesn't exist for them just doesn't and so the the closest we'll ever come to wor- living in the world that 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 group of parents wants to live in is by preparing your kids to fight against the world that they're going to have to live in so that they can be safe and feel prideful and learn to recognize early on um, the warning signs of people who might harm them and might think that they are less so that they don't internalize those kinds of messages as their own so they get clear messages that they are not whatever it is society is saying negatively about them but they need to know that those things that those things do exist so that when they hear them they know they're real and they have something that they can resist that from and we're talking about, and you've said a number of times that one of the first things we should do is initiate a conversation, that our silence yeah. is, is perceived as ignorance from our child, and, and, yeah. and we're shutting down. So what are some other, so talking, yes, um, and I can only guess that surrounding our children with other adults of their race would be immensely helpful, um, because these are people who have actually had to face it. Mhm. And 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 doing it not just for the kid. So, you know, really taking this on as we're just a multiracial family. Period. This is how we live. This is what we do. Parents have these friendships. Some of them will have nothing to do with the child and the child gets to see, "Oh, my my parents have or parent has friendships with all kinds of people." Mm-hmm. You know, and they're not just there for me because of me. They're there because this is how my parent lives. And this is who my parent is, and this is the social circle that they operate within. Because it can't be just for the kid that starts wow. to feel a little fake and and then constrained. So it it really needs to be just this is how we as a family live. And then these people can be deployed just like any family would, you know. When something is happening, any parent might pull in one of their friends to talk to their kid or an auntie or an uncle or whoever, that's that's just normal. And so then it just becomes a normal deployment of your friendship network and your and your social network. And I think the the other important piece is really to recognize all the different communities that by virtue of being a transracial adoptee, you now become 
a member of, accountable to, et cetera. So there's, you know, if you're a white parent or you have white, a white parent in this mix, then there's the white community. Then there's the communities of color that your kids might be a part of. There's the transracial adoptee community. There's the multiracial community, which is oftentimes a home for many transracial adoptees, both because they are oftentimes multiracial, but also because they come from a multiracial family. And so mm-hmm. all of these different communities and across different ages, adults, kids can be important resources. Kids need other kids to be able to look to and say, huh, I like what they're doing. You know, this is what I'm, this is what I'm dealing with. So it's sometimes there's a generational difference in that divide is for the same reason why, why a kid might not feel comfortable talking to their parent might be the same reason why a kid doesn't want to talk to their parent's friend. And so they might talk to their parent's friend, but it also is important that kids have a, a collection of options to be able to go to in a natural kind of everyday normal way and then it doesn't feel fabricated like all this extra stuff has to happen for them. Mm-hmm. And it, it allows it not to be a big deal. Of, yeah. Uh, okay, I need it this information. So I'm going to have to Exactly. It normalizes that that you seek help and you've got lots of people to ask. Yep. Uh, and you're just going to do it. Yeah, and it makes it easier as a as mm-hmm. oh, gosh, much Mom's going to have to figure out who to call and right. it's be embarrassing. And, yeah, uh, yeah. It's yeah. just especially the older they get, that just really doesn't, oh, yeah. yeah, you know. Yeah. You talked about all the different communities that, that transracial families are tangentially or directly a part of. And one of the things I uh, have interviewed uh, adult transracial adoptees or a young adult, well, I've interviewed all ages, but in particular, uh, we did a panel once with young adults uh, in there. Mm -hmm. I think the oldest was like 25. And uh, one of the things that they talked about, or one of the uh, uh, young people talked about, young adult talked about, was the, uh, I don't know that he would have said it was an advantage, but he he talked about that he felt that he could flow easily between both races. Mm-hmm. Is that something that that research has, has been able to tease out, uh, or was that just his individual experience? <laughs> um, that's actually a, a very common finding in multiracial research. So, you know, I would say there's a lot of, you know, part of my work is in, Transracial adoption, but it overlaps with um, for people who are mixed race. And I think transracial adoptees, though some of them are not themselves mixed race, they are growing up in a mixed race, a mm-hmm. multiracial family, yeah. and yeah. and have benefit of exposure to multiple races, multiple cultures. And so I think one of the one of the upsides when things go well is that you do have a lot of cultural capital in a lot of different spaces which is great. Um, It is sort of the foundation of what many institutions are trying to be in their quest towards diversity and multiculturalism and inclusivity and all these things that we're, we're trying to find ways to be, to appreciate the plurality of ways in which people live. And for those of us who've grown up in our own families in a plurality um, and figured out how to do that, for the benefit of all members, it's a huge. There's a huge strength, but it requires everybody to show up. It requires everybody to see each other and value each other as different, um, and and learn from one another. Um, but that is a, that is a very common um, thing that people who have grown up either as a multiracial person or grown up in a multiracial family will oftentimes list as a as a 
as a benefit or a, or a strength of having grown up multiracial. And so oftentimes report that they have best friends in more than one race, which oh, yeah. uh, I think we're moving to that as a nation, but I'm not sure we're there. Uh, in fact, <laughs> I'm sure we probably aren't there. But uh, the, uh, So that is, is a perceived uh, strength as well. The um, And when you said that it's important that people, for this to happen, uh, because indeed this is a plus uh, for transracial adoption, or it can be, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, you said people need to show up and Value people is different. I'm assuming that you mean parents need to show up and yeah. value and appreciate the that all uh, for that their child uh, is is different and appreciate the value that that brings. Am I? I'm not trying to put words yeah. in your mouth. So. No, nope, that's exactly that. what I'm saying. And in some yeah. ways, I would argue that's the task of parenting in all cases. In all cases, when we have kids, there's all these expectations, hopes about who they're going to be, and then we discover that actually they're different. And <laughs> they've got their own little agendas and their own little worlds and talents. Um, and some of watching them grow and develop, if you do it well, is actually figuring out a way to reposition yourself as a cheerleader to who they are, not as a confirmation of who you are and it just becomes another layer when you introduce race onto that and I think a lot of times in families we run the risk of thinking that closeness is only fostered when we all are the same we're all the same by race or we're all the same by genetics or we're all the same because we have the same color hair or we're all the same religion or we're all the same whatever it is um and that actually isn't how most healthy families are fostered. And connections aren't all, um, aren't most deep when everybody's the same. That difference can be an, a profound place of connecting. But I think many of us don't come from um, a way of knowing that suggests that that's true. And so folks come to transracial adoption thinking, mm, how, can, how are we going to be family despite this difference? Or in uh, you know, to to try to decenter the difference, or to ignore the difference, or or ignore the difference and make everybody the same, or only focus on our sameness. And I think that's a mistake because it doesn't it closes off the possibility of really being able to fully realize the positive that transracial adoption can be, or the positive that multiracial families can be. And so when I say everybody's got to show up who they with who they are, yes, it's the parents, but it's also parents making sure that in the family there's space for their kids to fully realize who they are um, as they're growing up. And that's kind of yet to be determined, but that there's space for them to be whoever they are. And that a lot of times that doesn't happen until, as you, we were talking about earlier, kids transition into adulthood. They go off and make their own decisions about who they're going to partner with, where they're going to live, Mm-hmm. what they're going to name their kids, if they're going to search for a biological family, mm-hmm. et cetera. And so all kinds of things happen eventually anyway. But um, how nice would it be if it could be happening all along? Mm-hmm. We have another question. She says, uh, my seven-year-old daughter prefers to play with white baby dolls and white mm-hmm. Barbies. Mm-hmm. I'm making in this, um, she doesn't say, but I'm uh, making the assumption that her daughter is not white. Right. She has, she has both colors of dolls, 
My husband wants to get rid of the white one, so she'll play with the black one. <laughs> we have never taught her that one is preferable to another. In fact, just the opposite. We'd appreciate some insight into what she is thinking and how we can help make sure she is proud of being a black little girl. Mm. Yeah, she's she's four. I don't know. Some of this I kind of... No, she's gonna seven. Be, I'm not I'm sure it matters. Oh, seven? seven. So, yeah. I, you know... <clears throat> Sometimes I get very cavalier about this and just say, oh, just let her play with whatever doll she wants, as long as she's got the <laughs> options and stuff. I mean, I just, I, I, but I don't want to also, I want to affirm that this is really good, that they're paying attention to that and <laughs> care about that. And I would be doing the same thing. And I would be freaking out about my kid liking the white doll better. And I would be absolutely <laughs> thinking about maybe just eliminating all the white options so that she could only choose <laughs> variations of brown. So I appreciate the husband. <laughs> I appreciate where he's at. <laughs> Um, but I also, I also might think, you know, that that's one, that's one venue where she's working out things that she likes and doesn't like. And I do think it matters to pay attention to what she's attracted to and think, and rather than to be reactive by taking all the white towels, like she's still going to have, she's still going to have access (coughs) to whiteness to seeing that. I would just do it, you know, I'd be wanting to sit back with my with my partner and say, okay, let's survey what she's getting exposed to and why maybe this is happening um, and try to figure out other other things that we can do to counterweight some of this attraction over time. Like the, just playing with white dolls while she's seven um, does not necessarily represent an identity problem. Um, it's a piece of information that would, yes, it would trigger my attention as well. So I can, I appreciate that concern. Um, but I also wouldn't want to make it so much of a big deal that then you're shaming her for liking a certain race of a doll. And so, you know, she should, like, would we have the same reaction if she was choosing Korean dolls or Latina dolls instead of black mm-hmm. dolls, you know? Like, so... To, to try to slow down our initial reaction a little bit and think through, okay, this is a piece of information. We wish she liked the brown ones. <laughs> um, but it's not the only piece of information. And to try to think through, like, where is this coming from and have conversations with her. And, not, you know, not to get, again, like back to that, oh, my gosh, is my kid being followed at 11? Like, I think sometimes white parents get a bit overreactionary one way or another when things could just be talked about and question like did you ask her why she likes the white doll better that's kind you of know, what like, i want to know is why you know like what's she thinking like i don't know what she's i don't know why she's liking that i mean i we could put on a race lens and i could the academic could be like oh it's because the social construction of whiteness is superior and blah blah and maybe that's <laughs> part of it it's very possible <laughs> that's part of it but it could, or also maybe there could she just, just be, likes the clothes that the white yeah, Barbie maybe. came with. Or, you know? Maybe. Yeah, it yeah. could be really that simple. So just before we just freak out about it, figure out, invite her into that conversation and start having conversations with her about about that and about aren't these other dolls pretty also? Don't you also really love their hair? I really love their hair. I remember listening to my mom, and she would always on TV – different races of people would come on and she would gush about how beautiful they are and how lovely they are. And they could be any race of whatever and any gender. And so I just think invite, before we put our lens on it, to invite the kid into the conversation in an innocuous way so you can learn more about what's going on before you react to it. 
can you say, okay, we, we don't jump to the conclusion uh, with a seven-year-old that her preference for a white Barbie or a white baby doll is an indication of a confused or unhealthy racial identity? But uh, so tell us what some of the what's what should we as parents look for and be concerned uh, with our children uh, for and, and throw out some ages so we know what we're talking about here um, for a, an unhealthy or a, a, a confused racial identity. I think you know that's a hard question to ask because I because I think um, it could look different and present itself differently at different times and I also am a strong believer that people have a right to decide their own identity and so even what we would even what we would call unhealthy um, may not be for some kids in some circumstances living in some contexts and so you know is it really that unhealthy for a kid who's not racially mixed to come to an identity that is racially mixed because he's trying to find a way of being inclusive of his adoptive and biological origins. I don't know. I'm open to that, you know? Mm. Um, and so I, mm. I think, I think to me, what I more so look for is less about the labels they're using or anything like that. And more about what's underneath it. Is is this child feeling ashamed of their hair or their skin are they trying to you know change it in some kind of way that signals to you that they don't like who they are that they don't like how they look that they want to change some kind of aspect of themselves and don't haven't learned to appreciate and love that that to me is far more concerning than um than these other things which i think we think are cues to these other things but I would rather look for these other things than the labels they're using or the dolls they're playing with. I'm much, I'd be much more worried as a parent about my child not feeling confident in who they are and how they look and loving, their, loving themselves and, and feeling a sense of belonging on their own terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, very well said that we need to not look at the superficial um, with our children, because none of us. I mean, uh, I have uh, a friend of mine whose son was gay when he went off to college. She mm. made sure she drove drove by the uh, the LGBT community center, mm. and mm-hmm. she wanted him to know where it was. And she made sure yeah. that she pointed it out to him. And he said, "Mom, I don't want to just. That's not what I'm. That's not how that's I not want my to whole be. community." <laughs> Yeah. yeah, he said, you know, I, I want to, you know, I, I want to play intramurals. I want to do, and, and yeah. you know, she was frustrated. She was trying. And, and she was, that was great. I know hey, she Mom. Was she said, Darn, I looked it up and put it on GPS yeah. to make sure we'd accidentally oh. drive by. And and then he's telling me that, that I'm pushing him. Um, right. So I, you know, sometimes we parents, you know, we can't win for losing. But, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. That's a yeah. true. That's, I guess that's a good way to kind of wrap up is that <laughs> you're going to yeah. make mistakes. Like, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. And so, to me, the best you can do is develop a kind of relationship with your kid where you have been talking about these things all along and that your kid knows you can handle it, that you're not going to melt and and freak out. You're not going to reject them. You're not going to ask them to prove that their perception of something isn't wrong, that you are on their side with this (laughs) and that... And then that's that that is the core of I guess all good parenting, but it especially comes into play here where you're dealing with some pretty insidious social 
uh, issues that will come into your family. Mm-hmm. Yes, and to, uh, to be there, you are going to be their cheerleader regardless, and that's yeah. the yep. we want our Thank you so much, Dr. Gina Samuels, for talking with us today about uh, this topic, which is such an important one for, uh, I think it's important for all of us, but it's certainly important for those of us who have uh, chosen to uh, become a transracial family through adoption. Let me remind everybody that the views expressed in this show are those of the guest and do not reflect necessarily the position of creating a family, our sponsors, or our underwriters. And also know that this is general advice, and to understand how it applies to your specific situation, work with your adoption professionals. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to us today, and I will see you next week. Right now at the Home Depot, you'll save up to 35% off appliance special buys, like a GE Appliance's top-load washer and dryer pair with deep clean and deep rinse options, a reliable heavy-duty agitator, and four precise water levels. Just $4.78 each. Wash, dry, save, repeat. Today is the day for doing with Spring Black Friday Savings now at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. U.S. only while supplies last. Yes, dry, extra, see store for details valid through April 17th.